My name is Willie Bolin. I study influence, persuasion, and leadership in selling and sales management, and I teach people how to sell. In this podcast, we'll talk to some of the world's top sales leaders and see what we can learn from them. Welcome to the Sales Lab. Every year in November, Florida State University hosts a massive event in Orlando, Florida. For business students, this is a sales role play and case competition, an opportunity to compete and get exposed to job opportunities with some of the world's best sales organizations. For companies, this is an unbelievable recruitment opportunity, bringing several hundred of the nation's best students, all already interested in starting their careers in sales, into one location for you to meet. So if you're a student looking to differentiate yourself and secure your dream job in sales, a marketing or sales professor looking to show off your students and connect them with great opportunities, or a sales manager or recruiter looking to acquire top sales talent, come learn more about the International Collegiate Sales Competition at www.icsc-fsu.com. That's www.icsc-fsu.com. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Adam Rubenstein. We cover a lot of material in this one. Talk a lot about coaching, emphasizing that coaching is about how, not what, and that coaching often requires you to be specific in a way that is not always obvious. Of course, his company, Track, uses sales conversation data to come up with coaching suggestions to help you manage your sales team. Essentially, it's like the game film. If you're playing sports, right, and you need to go back and review it. Well, why aren't we doing that in sales? Isn't sales just as important, maybe more important than, say, high school or college sports? Uh, Talk a little bit about entrepreneurial and salesperson characteristics that help in success. And yeah, this is part two of our three-part conversation with Adam. Hope you get something out of it. So that's what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. Very specific, important problem. How did you get here? How did it get here? Just a frustration of leading sales teams that... We started companies and sales was always the hardest thing to do. Hiring salespeople is difficult. Understanding what makes a salesperson tick and what matters. You know, I think that a lot of sales in the past, people thought it's, you know, gut, intuition and the gift of gab. And I think of sales as a science that it it has to be. If I can't turn it into a science or make it a science, then that means that it's just like flipping a coin, who's the right person to hire and what's the right process and methodology. I I just could not accept that. Mm. And I've done a lot of reading and sales is teachable. There's a lot of innate characteristics you hope to find in a salesperson. You want them to be uh, intellectually curious. You want them to be coachable. You hope they're really smart. But given those kind of behaviors and characteristics, if they can improve, they can get better. And to help them get better, you need to know what they're doing now and know how to make them better. And we're learning a lot of things that people did who were great salespeople. They thought it was just intuition, but with the advent of neuromarketing and neuro-linguistic processing, they found that a lot of our behaviors that we thought were innate or intuitive are actually, we've just identified certain behaviors and we don't have a way to put a name to it, but we just do it a certain, we behave a certain we way. pick up on these subtle little patterns and it seems like intuition. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's science. And so I want to, you know, but science requires data. You make a hypothesis and then you test it and see if it works. And the data is the sales conversation. It's the piece that I know has been ignored for since the beginning of time. And I said, I know there's data, you know, inside this conversation, I just got to figure out how to mine it. And at first we started using word search, right? Put in a word, find all the sentences that use that word. But that's a very poor way to 
really mine a conversation, that's where the artificial intelligence comes in. It's a much more effective way. It's a a starting point. We'll start there, but we we have to get a little bit deeper. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, I am a firm believer that the the way you say things and the way you do things matters, right? I I know we spoke a little bit uh, last week about you know, my, my distaste for when a sales leader gives their rep feedback that sounds like work harder or, or do more, you know, and, and that's well, from a coaching standpoint, that's not the way a good coach, I hope works. Uh, if I'm coaching an athlete and I have to be careful here because I really don't know very much about sports. So you're going to start naming people. I'm going to go, I, I don't know who that is, but you know, if I'm coaching an athlete, I don't get to say run faster. <laughs> that's the that, exact that example. Embarrass me as a coach. Uh, I don't get to say jump higher. I don't get to say, well, you know, uh, you were awfully close to catching that ball. Next time, why don't you catch it, right? We have to get into these details. We have to say how, when, you know, what, what, and it's, and what I love about it is the feedback is, is almost always very subtle. Like, I mean, down to outright strange and and like, you know, so the example I I can speak about because I played baseball when I was very young for, you know, a month or two was, is the, this idea of lifting up your elbow when you're at bat, well, raise, raise up your elbow. Well, it's, you know, it's kind of raised, no, no, like raise it up, you know, almost where it's, uh, you know, horizontal. Okay. Well, what the hell could that possibly have to do with me hitting this ball? You know I mean? Intellectually. Right. Right. And if I don't have a coach looking and and analyzing in a detailed way, my behavior, nobody's ever going to come up with lift your elbow. You know, they're going to come up with swing harder, faster, slower, um, watch the ball better. You know, all of these things that are just a little bit, you know, not, not all that actionable. And, but instead they come up with no, no, raise your elbow, right? And and so what this type of a technology and this type of an approach allows you to do is identify the raise your elbow, right? Identify right. the, oh, well, when you're diving, you're over-rotating and therefore you need to arch your back more uh, during your third, ro- I mean, like this crazy detailed feedback. And we think that it's important to give that type of feedback to collegiate sports. And for some reason, we don't always think it's important to give that type of feedback to salespeople, which to me sounds crazy. Well, you're, you're suggesting that, that sports is a metaphor for sales, I think is a great, very apt metaphor. And I think that the differences are just so clear. We have figured out how to make people better at sports. We watch them. We then identify what they're doing wrong, and then we point out how to do it better obviously running faster that's nice but that's usually not something that is easily changed but you know if the swing coach had watched your swing the lift your elbow is a is the excuse for not really knowing what you're doing wrong because most people don't know how to coach so they come up with the obvious these kind of standard cliche statements and sales is that much worse because we don't even see the game we're Sitting in the locker room, and I think you had used this metaphor yourself, this example. I think, you know, I, think like, I used it last week and then completely right. forgot it this week. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you're like, it's like we're in the locker room with the team. The team goes out on the field. They come back at the end of the game like we lost, coach. What do we do? And it's like, I don't know. Uh, sell more. Sell harder. Speak faster. Call more. I mean, it's mostly activity-based, right? It's call more people, send more emails, get more deals. And the problem with that approach is what you're really doing when you – increase the size of your sales force and make more calls and more emails, you're just sharing mediocrity, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're not actually improving people. And so if we can see into the 
sales conversation and actually see what's wrong, then we actually know how to coach. We can see where the problems are. We can help coach. The other thing about it is in every sport, there is game film, right? And at the end of the game or the next day, the team watches the game film to see what they did right and wrong. That is the recording, right? Every salesperson should be watching their or listening to their calls to get better. Now, that's assuming that they want to get better. And there are some people that maybe they don't, but there are many people that actually want to improve. They just don't know how to improve unless they can convince the sales leader to sit in on a call and give them some coaching pointers at the call. After the call, there's really very hard. There's no chance to coach. And so what do we do as sales leaders? We either hire one of these people to come in for a three-day seminar or we buy a book. The problem is it ends up being very generic coaching. It's kind of like lift your elbow. All you guys are not sending enough emails. You don't lift your elbow when you swing. That's not specific enough to that particular, the sale they are in to really help them do better. Yeah, absolutely. And and the your comment about somebody not necessarily remembering exactly what happened or, you know, I'm imagining somebody watching the the game they just played the day before and going, no, I, I didn't hesitate during that play. I, I ran full steam and, you know, it's only by showing them the video, by showing them exactly what happened that they go, oh, okay, all right. I, yeah. Okay. I see what you mean. And you know, there, there are two words that get thrown around and people take offense to them. And I, and I think we shouldn't take offense to them. And, and one is ignorant. You know, we should be able to say, I'm ignorant of this and somebody else is ignorant of that. I mean, we're all ignorant of a bunch of things. And the other one that I think really gets under people's skin, but I think is a, it's a valid part of our vocabulary is delusional. <laughs> now, very few of us are delusional across the board on all things, but every one of us is delusional from time to time. We, our memories are horrifically fallible and inaccurate in, in very crazy ways. So yeah, this is like, you know, even if you have the manager there, they're going to say, well, you know, I thought you could have asked some probing questions when the customer said this, the likelihood of the salesperson remembering it differently is, is pretty high. Maybe not every single call, but you know, it frequently enough that that's going to cause some problems in coaching, right? Cause if I, if I don't think I, uh, I messed anything up, if I don't think I did something wrong, then nothing you say after that is going to be perceived. And, uh, and of course, you know, we do this on a, on a smaller kind of brute force scale with our role plays where we have the students come in and uh, an instructor or maybe a more senior student is acting as the buyer and they go through the scenario and they videotape it. And, you know, we encourage them to go watch it. And a lot of them do. And some of them would rather die than watch themselves on video. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's exactly what happens with athletes. It's I need I need to convince you that you you lowered your head a little bit and it undermined your uh, credibility or something, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever it is, you know, and it, you have to have that proof. So this is great. Right. Well, it's and it's sometimes very subtle. People are not projecting. It can be that they're holding their chin too low against their chest. It's how they sound. I've had people tell me, you know, they've listened to my podcast and said, oh, Adam, I really think you should say it this way. There's so much value in re-listening to it and everyone else is doing it, but in sales. I was always a little bit surprised. I'd be sitting in my office and we'd be talking, the salesperson and me talking, and all of a sudden they jump up. Oh, I I got a call in two minutes. I got to get on it. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, you didn't even practice. I mean, it's like you wouldn't go out on the basketball court and not take some shots. You wouldn't swing, not swing your bat a few times, but yet you're going to go into a really important meeting and you haven't prepped, you haven't practiced the, the presentation, you haven't kind of prepared for it. You're just going to, you know, 
it's it's truly like cold calling. I mean, <laughs> there's no prep. And so all these things are, I think, are part of the professionalism of sales, that it is a science it is a professional activity, and we have to treat it as such. And too many people have got into sales. Maybe they were lucky, or maybe they sold something once and it stuck. But I think it's one of those things where you have to be evolving with the industry. You've got to be getting better. The industry is changing. The way we sold a couple of years ago and the way we sell today has, has changed, and I'm sure it's going to continue to change. And we have to keep up with it. I, you know, Every other industry, whether you're a doctor or a car mechanic, everything is changing. But for some reason, we think sales is just, it's in my gut and I can just do it. And I think that's a mistake. And I love the fact that you, you being a professor there at Florida State and, and there's a program for this. I mean, the, when I first heard about your program and that they have you know, offered a degree in sales, I'm like, where were you 25 years ago? <laughs> that's I would have just loved that because I was living in that age early on that it was just either you had the gift of gab or you didn't. Yep. So let's go back. So you uh, you went to school somewhere, you came out, you <laughs> dove into sales. Where, where did you oh, get your start? So I went to a school, the Colorado College, and uh, got a degree in English literature. I wanted to learn to write. That was my weakness on my SAT. And I knew that communication was critical, whatever I was going to do. At least I had that foresight. That's maybe the only thing I was <laughs> thoughtful about in my college years. Came out and I started a bicycle shop because I was really into cycling. And I was working in a bicycle shop right out of college. Didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't want to be an accountant it seems somewhere. seems like a very Colorado sort of thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And But I'm not, I, I moved back to the East Coast because Colorado's landlocked and I wanted to be near the ocean. But it's a, an amazing place to go to school, an amazing place to live. But I wanted to go back East. And I had had jobs during the summer at a bicycle shop because that was my passion. And the owner of the shop said, hey, Adam, would you like to be a an owner and buy in with me. And I said, sure. And I went and talked to my family and said, could I borrow some money? And they said, sure. And I went back and he said, and the first thing we're going to do is lower your salary. And that was, that was <laughs> kind of put the, an end, a kibosh to that idea. So my father said, well, no, you can do it on your own if you'd like. And he saw that I'm very industrious. So we opened a bike shop, my father and me. I mean, he's a doctor. He would just help out on the weekends, things like that. But I opened up a bike shop. And the first thing I realized that bike shops had no inventory management. Now, this is in the late 80s. PCs were out, but there was no inventory software. So mm. I was frustrated that people would want to buy things and I didn't have them in stock. So I went to a, a PC software store and said, what do you have for inventory management? And the guy handed me a box that had software coding technology. It was called DBase. And I taught myself to write code and I built an application to manage inventory for bicycle and fitness stores. I started selling it, sold about 175 copies at $2,000 a shot to bike shops all around the country. And at some point, someone came in and wanted to buy it from me. I sold it, used that to pay for grad school, applied to grad school. You know, there's an old story back in the day about bike shops. You know how to make $2 million in a bike shop? Oh, I Start don't. with $5 million. <laughs> Uh-huh. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's, it was a tough business back then, and I knew I needed to go to grad school. So I sold the software company and, and sold the bike shop and went to grad school, came out of grad school and tried getting a job. But I am unemployable. I'm just not that guy that wants <laughs> to work for somebody else. I always had ideas, things to – I wanted to solve problems with technology. So – after that, I took a job after grad school. That didn't go that well. I then started a company. 
we called it convenience products. We sold products to the convenience and grocery industry. And I was one of the, I guess, foundation people in the prepaid calling card industry. So we had a big part of that. At one point, our company, my, I had a partner that from grad school, he moved to Florida with me. And we had 128,000 stores selling our phone cards and did that. That company got bought by bigger companies and we moved on. We started a consulting firm doing business plans, looking for our next opportunity. So we would be the business plan builder. Did that for a few companies. For a a very brief period of time, we were in scrap metal. So we built a business reselling scrap metal online. And before we even got it launched, somebody wanted to buy it. That was one of those fluke good fortunes. Somebody came and bought it for a ridiculous amount of money. We sold that and then we moved on to the next company and it was called Motion Point. And what we did at Motion Point was we translated websites into other languages using technology. So we would layer Spanish, French, Chinese on top of a website so that you could work the website, go to a bank, and you could do all your banking in Spanish or Chinese. And the effort on the part of the website company, whether it was you know, J.P. Morgan Chase or SunTrust, was adding one line of code into their website. We would manage the rest. We'd identify any new content that was on the site. We would submit it for translation, get human translators to give us the translation. Then we would inject it into the site. So we were building a perfect copy of their site, but in another language. That went very well. And we did that for a long, long time. And I got, after 18 years, was ready to move on, try something different. I had this problem in sales I wanted to solve, so I quit that. My partner continued to run it, and we started Track 365. And then meanwhile, I'm on the board of that other company. And back in March, we sold that other company to uh, a private equity firm out of New York. And so don't have those companies behind me anymore. I'm full-time at Track 365. No, I'm not on the Motion Point board anymore. I'm just doing Track. And I, I see great potential great opportunity here because you know the sales conversation is so critical and I'm really excited and the feedback I'm getting from users is very enthusiastic so I'm very excited I mean, that's a pretty interesting trajectory, right? English major to bike retailer to dipping your toes into technology and now a few decades later you are all technology. Right. And I mean, that's got to be encouraging for somebody about to wrap up their English degree to hear, right, that there there are ways to pivot. I mean, part of that must be a right place, right time, right? I mean, you know, if, if sometimes we think back to our those pivotal moments, right? So if you hadn't walked into that store and that person hadn't said, oh, you got to look at DBase, well, right. you know, what, what would have happened then? But what are some of the characteristics or attitudes or traits that you think are useful and helping somebody kind of be adaptive and look for opportunities uh, like an entrepreneur would? Well, first thing, I'm big on curiosity. I'm always curious about other people's lives and then what they do for their job, for their living. And I think that being curious, number one, people, you know, I ask questions, people love to answer them. So I love asking lots of questions. And I love learning about what people are doing. So I think curiosity kind of lead. it's a great, great salespeople are really curious I think great entrepreneurs are very uh, serious. I say curious and great entrepreneurs are very curious. Also, they, they are just, you know, about the world around them. I'm not afraid. uh, I've never been afraid of what was going to happen to me. I thought, okay, well, if I fail at this, I'll be living in a cardboard box on the side of the road, but that's okay. You know, I'll somehow pick myself up and I'll, I'll move on. 
I do timing does help. When we started the website translation company, it was right when the U.S. Census of 20, 2000 came out, and they had identified that the U.S. Hispanic was now the rapid, the fastest growing, you know, uh, group in the country and uh, minority, and that there was an obvious need to cater to the U.S. Hispanic and offer them the ability to do things in their own language or the language of choice, whether it be English or Spanish. So there is a lot of that, you know, timing. I'd rather be lucky than good is the old expression. And mm-hmm. I've, I've had some very good luck in my day. And I also always like to solve a problem, like a big problem that I have experienced. I'm sure that you've got problems that you experience all the time. And you have to say one day, is this problem ubiquitous? Is it big enough that if I solve it, others will care. Yeah. And COVID hit and I was getting on the phone and I spoke to literally more than 500 sales leaders. And I would ask them, I would share with them what I was doing. That was the reason I initiated the conversation. I want to share with you what I'm doing. I want to hear your thoughts on it. And everyone agreed. I'd ask them, is this a brilliant idea? Big, big problem. Is this a you know, interesting idea, or am I wasting my time? And it was, this is a big problem. When I asked them, do you know what your team is doing? Do you have good visibility into their deals? Are you frustrated with the notes that you're seeing? They said, yes, this is a big, big issue. And so I felt good that I'm solving a big problem. But I also want to solve a problem that I've I've experienced because I know that at least one person is going to be happy when I'm done. I'll be very <laughs> pleased with whatever I build. So, uh, so I think that when, as an entrepreneur, you know, if you're trying to s- find a problem that's big and when if that everyone is going to care about, and that's the starting point. Yeah. And sometimes those problems are not as obvious. I think that you know, if someone had come to me, well, when people came to me and I heard about Airbnb, I'm like, you're going to let someone live on your couch? I'm like, what? That's crazy. Or <laughs> you know. You're going to like get picked up by some random person in a car for Uber? Uh, no, but you know, the world is changing, people are evolving, and it's uh, you know, obviously a brilliant idea. Um, I had not been given the chance to invest in either of those, so I did not have the chance to decide whether it was good or not. But uh, others who had invested were very smart. They saw the future. Well, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about timing and things like that, but the, the fact is, maybe this kind of parallels track 365 uh, and, and the notion of if you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it, right? Right. You know, same thing with entrepreneurial opportunities. And this is something that my last real job, so to speak, before <laughs> going going into academia was uh, selling accounting services and, and almost exclusively to startups, small businesses. There are a lot of challenges for a small business owner. And I really started to kind of see that a lot of these people that were investing their life savings or their inheritance, or they were putting a lot on the line for reasons that seemed strange to me, seemed were concerning to me, right? Like the, the what I use a lot with my students is, uh, you know, oh, you, you, you saved up all your life and and then these terrible people around you, let's call them your friends and family, they keep telling you that you make a great pizza. Right. And they say, Adam, man, you make the, I, I've never had a pizza this good, Adam. You should start a pizza business. If you had a pizza business, Adam, oh my God. It's, and, then, and then you hear this for years and years and years. And then finally, <laughs> finally, you believe what these terrible, mean-spirited people are saying to you and you dump all of your money into this pizza business only to find out that it's a lot of cleaning, it's a lot of bookkeeping. 
you get to make a pizza here and there, but mostly you you pay some kid to make the pizza and he messes it up. He doesn't make it the way you would make it anyway. And now you're stuck and you've spent all your money. Whereas, you know, what marketing would suggest is you find the opportunity, you find the need, you find the problem, right? right. And uh, there was a great quote. I, I cannot think of the person's name. I think it was some executive at Yahoo. And it goes, I'll probably botch the quote as well, but something along the lines of, stop asking your children what they want to be when they grow up and start asking them what problem they want to solve when they grow up. And uh, I have a bunch of kids, so I share this with them. And I, I think it's a pretty good perspective, right? Because you say, what do you, what do you want to be? They're going to say things that are obvious to them, things they see, right? So it's firemen, policemen, uh, doctors, right? Who do they have? Teachers, right? The things right. that people they interact with. But turns out, you know, what problem do you want to solve? You want to solve world hunger? Okay, that that could actually be a number of different roles. That could be right. you could be a physician, you could be a scientist, you could be a development professional that raises lots of money to fund scientists, and you know. But it gives you a purpose, right? And that's where uh, we, I think, we like to start with a purpose, right. right? It's not just about checking some boxes to get a paycheck. I hope it's about providing some sort of value, solving some sort of problem. And I think the people that don't start with that foundation end up very frustrated if if not immediately in their career then eventually in their career thinking is this really all for nothing like well you know if you didn't start with a purpose it it might be i completely agree i think that statement i have not used it that is really smart what problem are you going to solve and i think it fits me because i always have to, to me the satisfaction is you have to enjoy the journey mm-hmm. and to me it's kind of this feeling like I solved this problem. And when I saw the ability to convert a website into other languages and I would sell 11 languages to one of our customers and I'd walk in their building and like they knew I was the guy that solved this big problem. And I felt good. I mean, nobody, nobody walked up and, you know, that's the genius that did that. Cause they, you know, I, no one ever said it to me, but you know, I felt good about it and I feel good about solving this problem with sales that, it's a big problem. Everyone has it. And I want to be the, the person that solves it, or at least it's not me alone. I have a team of people that are way smarter. That's the other thing I learned about entrepreneurship. Find really smart people and then hang on. Yep. So maybe it's identifying smart people is the real magic of being an entrepreneur because there's always been way smarter people. I've got AI guys and developers and partners that are all really sharp. And so I am good at identifying the problem and kind of illustrating it, but then they are tasked with, you know, the specifics, what code we write to solve it. They're really good at that. And I, you know, I'm thankful that I've been lucky in that regard also that finding really smart people to help out and, and, and design a lot of this technology. So find a big problem, take pride in solving it, and then do not stop. That's the other thing. I'm the guy that doesn't stop until I solve the problem. You may someday we're going to run into each other. I'm going to be, you know, 104 years old, you're going to go, I'll be still working on that problem, right? That's, I will not stop until it's figured out. We're going to stop it right there for now. Please dive into the next episode of the Sales Lab to hear the conclusion of this interview. And by the way, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and to rate this podcast on whatever app you use to listen. Also, share this with your colleagues and friends, and let's continue to have a deeper discussion on all things related to selling and sales leadership. See you next time in the Sales Lab.